This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexander. All right, welcome, welcome, welcome back to Fans on the Run. This is my second time trying to introduce the show because I did such a bad job the first time. If that is not a metaphor for this show, I don't know what is. We have a great fucking guest for you. I, I often say we have a great guest, but I rarely say we have a great fucking guest. So, you know, I I'm, I'm t- I mean business. He started writing for the London Beatles fan club and he helped found the current British Beatles fan club. He assisted Hunter Davis in writing the that awesome Beatles book that came out, was it 2016? Uh, and he's an author in his own right, uh, no pun intended. Uh, he's written books uh, like The Country of Liverpool, Liddy Pool, The Fab 104, Finding the Fourth Beatle, and a really cool crime detective novel set in 1960 Liverpool called Inspector Rock. And... He has a new book coming out, along with our good friends Susan Ryan and Richard Porter, along with some help from Peter Pietzold. David Bedford, welcome to the show. Can I break your record, fellow? Hello, 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 hello. How's that? How's that? How's that? Beautiful. You you did it. You you have officially usurped me in my own show. <laughs> it's an honor. It, good to be gotten to you. Ethan. It's it's an honor. Uh, for me too. It's it's great to be talking with you too. Uh, Good, so I'm looking forward to it. So, how are you doing over there? How's how's life been hand or treating you in this whole lockdown? Um, it's an interesting one, uh, because I spend most of my time at home anyway, uh, writing, researching, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so not much of that has changed. Um, because one of the reasons I got into writing was because I was signed off work 20 years ago uh, with fibromyalgia. Oh. And my doctor told me to find something to do. So this is what I've been doing for the last 20 years, which is writing about the Beatles. Oh, that's so hard. That's so difficult. Um, so it, it's life hasn't been that much different for me. Um, but just the fact that somebody says you can't go out. Yeah. So I was, didn't go out of the house for like 10 weeks. I, I wasn't um, planning on leaving the house. I wasn't planning on leaving the house anyways, but I liked the f- option to be able to do so. But what, exactly. what can you do? I, I don't yeah. want people to die. No, exactly. So I've stayed inside and I've kept very, very busy, but it's all good busy. It's nice stuff. So I'm happy. I mean, I spend my life researching, writing about the Beatles I mean, that that's that's not work. That's just fun, and and a privilege really as well. Can you give us a little glimpse into what kind of things you've been working on? Ooh, um, well, you mentioned one of the books, uh, "The Country of Liverpool," which has just been delayed coming out because of the um, the COVID crisis. Mm-hmm. So that's about ready to go when everything's back open again. So that's going to be a really unusual take on part of the, the Liverpool Beatles story. Mm-hmm. Um, because not many people realised back in the 60s, Liverpool was known as the Nashville of the North. Really? Because it had the biggest country and Western scene, certainly in Britain, but probably in Europe as well. I, I can say with 100% certainty, I did not know Liverpool had a had a country and Western scene. It, it was absolutely huge. I've, I only know about the Mersey Beat. Well, if you look then back at the roots of Mersey Beat, but then you go roots of the Beatles then Roots of the Quarrymen, 
Skiffle, which is what got the Quarrymen started mm -hmm. in 1956. The roots of Skiffle are in American bluegrass mm -hmm. and country all, and folk. All the washboards and the exactly tea chest. That, that, so that's all rooted in that music. And you know the the biggest one of the biggest musical influences for any of that Merseybee generation is Hank Williams. Really. Absolutely. John Lennon was a huge Hank Williams fan. I knew Ringo was in too, quite a bit of that country yeah. western stuff. No, but all, all four Beatles were. Um, in fact, it's one of the cool things. I did a talk on this um, at the Beatles in the Ridge a couple of years ago. And I showed them one of the earliest Quarrymen business cards. And at the musical genres, it says country, western, skiffle, rock and roll. Oh, wow. So rock and roll got fourth billing. Yeah, so that was just part of it. So when you start listening to skiffle music, which is, you know, Lonnie Donnie yeah. was the proponent of that, well, that was a lot of American Railroad songs which come under the genre of mixed between American folk, some roots country, some bluegrass, all the influences there. So a lot of what got the Quarrymen going were country and western artists and songs. You know, if you look at the artists that they cited their inspiration and numbers like Buddy Holly, Roy Orbison, Carl Perkins, you know, Elvis, all got the roots in country music. I, I feel a little bad because the only exposure I've had to Lonnie Donegan is a song of his called My Old Man's a Dustman. Oh, yes. So I, right. I don't know if that's exactly the best uh, thing to gauge his career off of. Have you have you never listened to Rock Island Line? Uh, no. Right. You need to listen to Rock Island Line because that is the song that came out in early 1956. That's what sparked the Skiffle Revolution. Just wrote that down, so I'm going to check that out. It, it, it has to be done because that got to the top of the charts here. It charted really well in America as well. On the back of that, the Skiffle craze started, lasted for just over two years, 56 to maybe early 59. Mm -hmm. That is what started kids all over the country picking up washboards, tea chest base, a comb and paper, and suddenly from selling maybe 5,000 guitars across the country previously, shops were now selling 250,000 guitars. That's the record that got the Quarrymen together. You know, it's one of the few records John actually went out and bought. Most of them he, he borrowed either from friends or illegally borrowed from shops. Um, That's a nice way <laughs> of putting it. Yeah, I did, he, was a, he was a tea leaf. He, he loved stealing things. Okay. Um, but he played Rock Island Line to death. Really did. And then sold it to Rod Davis from the Quarrymen. Hmm. <laughs> when, it, when it's virtually unplayable. So Rock Island Line is, is the record that starts the skiffle revolution that starts the Quarrymen. I'm going to have to verse myself in some Lonnie Donegan then. Absolutely, honestly. And you listen to his stuff and because he came from a mainly jazz background, um, but he absolutely loved Woody Guthrie. So all that American folk music that Woody Guthrie was writing and singing, Lonnie Donegan was listening to all that. And when you start listening to Donegan's stuff, the skiffle, you can hear Woody Guthrie in there. But then with Lennon and his friends listening to particularly Hank Williams, it, it was massive here in Liverpool. Um, but then, because you think of you know, Elvis, mm -hmm. you know, he was known as the hillbilly cat. 
when he first started yeah. as a country boy before rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Um, you got Carl Perkins, and of course George idolised Carl Perkins, um, and he was doing that mixture of country rock and roll uh, rockabilly. You know, so all these all these artists had their roots in American country music. So it was massive here in Liverpool. <laughs> and nobody's really picked up on that. So I've been studying it for the last three or four years. And in, interviewing local musicians, picking up on great interviews. And I've got fantastic quotes over the years from you know, John Paul George and Ringo, who've all commented on the importance of country music to them. Do you think the reason why uh, like the Liverpool scene was so influenced by country and western is because it was you know the shipping city so i know the american records would get in there before they would yeah. reach london is that why yeah that's the one of the big reasons um because the transatlantic route from liverpool to new york uh, was huge mm-hmm. you know there was several crossings a week so all the ships would be full of liverpool crew mm-hmm. so when they would get to new york they'd get off the ships and they'd have a couple of days in New York. So they'd all go for this, uh, I think it's the blocks line between uh, 43rd and 53rd Street in Manhattan. <laughs> and they had the record stores they knew and they'd buy suits and they'd get cameras, all kinds of stuff. But they were bringing back records into Liverpool and a lot of the ones they were picking up were country and western. <laughs> and so Liverpool developed this country and western scene. Now, London had some and some of the other port cities like Glasgow, uh, maybe Newcastle on the East Coast, they had country followings as well, but nothing on the the, the size um, that Liverpool did and the influence. And it's amazing you go back, look at the interviews with Merseybeat musicians, <laughs> they all go back to Hank Williams. So if you haven't listened to Hank Williams, then you go back and listen to his stuff. And within the stuff he was recording in the 40s, you've then got, the basics of rock and roll in there. <laughs> and there's a great song he did called um, Move It On Over. I think Now that was again recorded, I think it was late 1940s. <laughs> if you listen to Move It On Over, it's almost note for note being lifted, copied, reworked slightly as Rock Around the Clock. Oh, really? Yeah. It's you, you listen to Move It On Over, which recorded years before. Then you listen to Rock Around the Clock, and, it, and it's almost identical. You can't miss it. Was there any legal battle over that? Um, I don't think so, because mm. they were able to, to tweak it. Okay. Um, but you, you can't miss it. You can't miss it. When you, when, as soon as you hear it, the first time I listened to Move It On Over, I thought, hang on, that's Rock Around the Clock. It, it's, it's so obvious that it is, and that's lifted. So with Rock Around the Clock sort of becoming known as the first rock and roll record over here, <laughs> Well, you can say, hang on, Hank Williams was doing that years before. So, and it wasn't really rock and roll, what Bill Haley and the comments were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that was still probably in that crossover of country music with bits of rock and roll and swing in there. It's when you get into, um, certainly when Elvis started making that transition to rock and roll. Mm-hmm. But the, the big one here in Liverpool, the certainly one that, that changed uh, John Lennon's world was here in Little Richard. Mm-hmm. Now, again, you, you look at this year of 1956, which is when the Quarrymen started. Yeah. Beginning of the year, you've got Lonnie Donegan, Rock Island Line. By the spring 
And then I think Long Tour Sally's out. And then you've got Heartbreak Hotel. It was just 1956 is the year everything in this country changed. And it all, and it just so happened to be as, you know, John was forming his band. Well, and that's what inspired him. Mm-hmm. He loved Rock, Rock, uh, Rock Island Line. So that got him into the skiffle. He couldn't speak when he first heard Long Tall Sally. And he said that that was the song that took him from Liverpool to the rest of the world. Yeah. But then he saw Elvis and he wanted to be Elvis. So the three basics of getting the Quarrymen started, getting John Lennon to take that first step with his friends to form a group, it's all within Lonnie Donegan with Rock Island Line, Long Tall Sally, Little Richard, Heartbreak Hotel with Elvis. And that is your basics of getting the Beatles started. That's where it comes from. I can honestly say I did not know the extent of the, you know, Western or the country Western influence. Not many people do. Um, oh, good on you for not, sharing it. I, I just love it. Well, the, the reason I got into this was um, there's a guy called Phil Brady, and um, he started his country and Western band in Liverpool in 1962. Um, and so I started, I, I met him, and he came to me uh, about four years ago with a, a little suitcase. And he said, I've kept all of this. Oh. Would you be interested in, in doing uh, my story? And this is, I just opened the suitcase and it is full of photographs, flyers, tickets, newspaper cuttings. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Oh, wow. So using that of, of telling his story, but as I started talking to him and then other of the country stars, they're saying, well, you know, when, when you get into the early 60s, you look at the, the lineups for uh, where the Beatles are playing, and you would often have country groups on the same bill. Wow. So there's a real mix, and, and a lot of the country groups were incorporating some of the, the Chuck Berry songs. Because, like, Chuck Berry, a lot of his early stuff was certainly um, country and rockabilly, mm-hmm. but it went really rock and roll. So there was this crossover between them that most groups, as well as doing the rock and roll and the pop music that came out uh, within that Mersey beat sound, there is definitely a country influence. Um, and I just started as I do, I started one place and I just followed the trail and I suddenly realized how significant the country music element was to the Beatles sound. And when you, I started going digging through interviews and stuff, because as you said, you know, we all know about Ringo, you know, he loved mm-hmm. his country music. But if you look at um, George Harrison, if you look at his guitar playing through the Beatles career, mm-hmm. Carl Perkins was his inspiration, mm-hmm. but he also learned to play like Chet Atkins. Mm-hmm. Now, Chet Atkins was the guy who became known for the Nashville sound. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of George's career, he was playing the Gretsch, yep. country gentleman. The Chad Atkins model. Exactly. So when you start listening then with, with the, like the country tuned in ears to George's guitar work, mm-hmm. you cannot fail to hear Carl Perkins and particularly Chet Atkins. Especially on the uh, solo to All My Loving. Uh, it stands out to yeah. me, that kind of, the yeah. way he picks. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's very Chet Atkins. <laughs> and so then I thought, okay, so how many songs that the Beatles recorded of their own or of covers are country songs? I made myself a playlist. I think I've got 25 oh, wow. songs on it. And the majority of them are originals. And there's one Beatles album, which John Lennon described as our country and Western album. Beatles for Sale? Correct. Go back and listen to Beatles for Sale. No, I, I can hear it even just uh, thinking about it. Yeah. It, it's, it's all there. But nobody sort of pulled it all together. So I, I just went digging. And the more I was looking at it and talking to musicians, I think it, it's huge. It's all there. And then go and finding these interviews that the Beatles are giving at various times during their careers and they're all acknowledging those country roots. <laughs> no, because obviously after they went solo, <laughs> Ringo, of course, his second album was at Bukusa Blues, yeah. which was recorded in Nashville, a straight country album. <laughs> but then, of course, um, Paul went out to Nashville. When you look at, at Junior's farm, yeah. etc. You know, he was out there for a couple of weeks interviewed a great guy who managed to talk his way in to staying on the farm with Paul and Wings for two weeks. How? Um, he he got in touch with, uh, I think it's Melody Maker, okay. music paper over here. And he became officially assigned to cover the story. And they let him on. And he's got some great photos, which he's let me use, um, of him just hanging out with Paul and Wings um, and his brilliant. and it's then that Paul then talked about how important country music was to him for his musical roots as well oh wow so it, it, it's all there and I've been pulling it all together um, so I'm just waiting for all the printers etc to get back mm -hmm. um, and then yeah it will be on so that's why I've got, I thought the country of Liverpool um, Nashville of the North it's that lovely thing of, yeah, it's about country music, but it's, it's about the mentality <laughs> of the people of Liverpool as well. <laughs> because we seem to think of ourselves as an independent country. Because, <laughs> um, of course, you know, cowboys were huge here. You know, the cowboy films, all the Beatles loved them. <laughs> used to go on Saturday morning cinema to go and watch the cowboy films. So you had it on television as well as in music. So the whole country and western american thing was, was huge and in some ways um i was talking with a friend of mine and he was saying it's almost like you look at liverpool as the last frontier oh and in some ways liverpool looks across to america a lot more than it does looking down to london huh so the american influence is is huge here and it really was um there's a guy he was from Manchester, so he was like 35 miles down the road. And he was doing some research about, you know, what television programmes and movies were the Beatles um, watching? And so we started talking and he sort of expanded that and he's done this, this chapter all on his own. Uh, and it's all about that cowboy influence. And, and it's amazing how many television programmes there were, how many movies there were. They were all getting, you know, obsessed with cowboys from a very young age. You know, kids grew up playing cowboys and Indians. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the stories of John, when he would play cowboys and Indians with his friends, he would always be the Indian. 
And if he told you you were dead, you stayed dead. Oh. <laughs> he, he was the boss. But that, that's what he did. So from a very young age, everybody of that era was just obsessed with cowboys and Indians. So the American influence on Liverpool is absolutely huge. Um, and I, I picked that up in the second book that I, that I did, The Fab 104, The Evolution of the Beatles. I have that book. Well, no, I've got that, that chapter and I'm looking at you know, Radio Luxembourg and that, the musical influence um, with the American airbase mm-hmm. just outside Liverpool at Burton Wood. So you had you know, thousands of US servicemen literally 15 miles away. Mm-hmm. And when they were going for their R&R, they'd come into Liverpool hmm. and they brought the records with them. And because there was segregation on the base, so the black guys would come, we've got a large Afro-Caribbean community, have done for a long time. Mm-hmm. They had their own clubs. So these black US servicemen would go to those clubs and bring their records. And the white guys would go into the city center. Well, those clubs were very close to where John was staying at Gambia Terrace in the flat there. <laughs> he, John, he, Paul and George, would go to some of these uh, black clubs around the Liverpool Lake area. They would interact with, talk to these American servicemen, and they were listening to records. because that's where the R&B element was coming <laughs> in. As well as country music, they get all this amazing blues stuff and R&B. And because there were so many groups developing by the early 60s, you had to find records that were unique that no other band were playing. Mm-hmm. So they were looking for these obscure B-sides just so they'd have something different. Yeah. So they, they were getting all these influences from a young age, going right into when they become the Beatles. They're picking up all of this, they're just absorbing it, and it's all American stuff. Now, Radio Luxembourg, uh, was just full of the best American DJs and latest American music. Mm-hmm. Well, the tuning actually into the um, Armed Forces Network, which was beaming American music to the American troops in Europe. <laughs> so that they would tune in. That's where John first heard uh, Elvis through one of his school friends, Don Beatty. Don tuned into Armed Forces Network, heard Elvis, went into school the next day to John and said, you've got to hear this. And it was Heartbreak Hotel. Oh, wow. So they're, they're getting all these influences of Americana. It's all coming into Liverpool. So that's why, understanding all that, that's, that's why I do what I do, because it's like I said on the front of, of my first book, Liverpool. Mm-hmm. If you're going to understand the Beatles, you've got to understand Liverpool. Mm-hmm. And it's a very unique place. And the Beatles could only have come from here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to turn this over and ask some questions about you. Ask away. When did you first discover the Beatles? Oh, flipping it. Um, so where I grew up was the Dingle, <laughs> uh, where Ringo's yeah. from. Literally, uh, Madden Street, where he was born. <laughs> you get to the bottom of, of Madden Street, you turn onto South Street, go about 20 yards, that was my back gate. Okay. So I, I lived in the Dingle till I was 24. So the school... I went to, we call it primary, you call it elementary school. Okay. Silas School. I went there from the age of four till 11. Well, that was the school that Ringo had gone to. Oh, wow. So um, when I first got married, so I got married in 1987, and the house we lived in 
was two streets on from Admiral Grove, where Ringo grew mm-hmm. up from the age of five, right opposite St. Silas School. Um, so I, I'd had sort of the Beatles influence there. It's probably when I started playing guitar, which must have been around 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first music book I got was The Beatles Complete, um, which, which I still own all these years later. What was the first um, song you learned out of that book? Oh, good question. I went for the easy one. I think I'm pretty sure I went for Get Back because I thought it's it's a straight rocker. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice and simple to do. Because one of the things you realise, um, the more experience you get and you listen to the actual songs themselves, mm-hmm. that book was full of wrong lyrics. Oh. <laughs> and some very unusual um, guitar chords at times as well. Yeah. Um, well, I, I've still got it. I, I won't. I won't lose that. So it was the music that got me first. Mm-hmm. Um, but then obviously when you know that that's the area where I'm from. Um, so Ringo was sort of my first, my first hero. Mm-hmm. But then, uh, so we got married in 87. Then in 89, we moved to where, where we're living now, mm-hmm. which is just off Penny Lane, which you may have heard of. Yeah. Some, um, some street. Around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so we've been here since 1989. Um, and then we've got three daughters. They were all born in Oxford Street Maternity Hospital, mm-hmm. which is where John Lennon was born. Oh, wow. And our local primary school where they went is Dovedale. Okay. Which is where John Lennon and George Harrison both attended. Um, so because they all three were, were at that school, uh, my wife and I got involved with like the parents' committees and stuff like that. And this is how I got into then writing about them with the London Beatles fan club was 20 years ago, we were doing a fundraising uh, thing for the playground Mm -hmm. and we put out an appeal and it was Yoko was the one who responded. Mm -hmm. And she said, how much money do you need? And we said, we need about 27,000 pounds. So any contribution would be greatly appreciated. And she said, well, I'll give you 30,000 pounds. Oh, I'll pay for everything you need, plus put some money in the kitty. Um, and she made a number of visits to the school. Oh, wow. And I just thought, hang on. This is a sort of story that people should know. And uh, one of the events that, that we organised at the time was um, a school reunion. Anybody who'd ever attended. And because the Beatles links, mm-hmm. we got national... Uh, press and everything and so I got to meet a number of people who were at school with John and with George really yeah and and through talking to one of those guys um he was writing a piece all about Penny Lane for the London Beatles fan club mm-hmm. but he was no good with technology so he said if I send it to you can you email it on for me because we're going back 20 years mm-hmm. so technology was a little bit different in the uh, dial-up internet and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I did. I sent it off, and I just said to the editor, I said, you got anybody covering anything in Liverpool? Would you be interested? This is the story about Yoko. He said, oh, send it to me. So I sent it down. It got published. And that was the first thing I ever wrote about the Beatles. And um, you haven't looked back so, since. Exactly, because I still... As you say, you know, I helped to found the British People's Fan Club. I still write for the magazine mm-hmm. uh, and proud of where it started. And yeah, just gone. So 
it started in childhood. But I basically, I've had the Beatles around me my whole life. What was your first Beatles album or single or whatever piece of music? Um, oh, crumbs. Now you are testing my memory. I think... That is what I am here for. Yes. I think, I, I think the first album I got, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Please Please Me. Oh. Um, and I, I must admit, I still love that album. Because I, I know what George Martin was trying to do with them. Mm-hmm. You know, and the fact that recorded the majority of it in one night. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there is just something magical about Twist and Shout and I saw her standing mm-hmm. there. And it, it's funny, uh, one of my daughters were at, was at um, a party a few months back. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all mid-20s yeah. now. Um, and she said, you know, the party was going okay. And then the DJ put on, I saw her standing there, she said, and the dance floor was packed. Oh, wow. Even you know, to this day. Still do that. It, it's, and that's it. So much of the music they created is timeless. It is timeless. That's why you have people like me, a 17-year-old from Canada, hosting a Beatles exactly. show. Exactly. And, and that's why they will survive, because just like Tchaikovsky and Bach and Beethoven, etc., from a couple of hundred years ago, are still being talked about and listened to. Mm-hmm. That's what the Beatles catalogue will be. It will stand on just on its music alone. It, it's just, it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So, Please Please Me was your first album. What's yeah. your favourite Beatles album? Oh. If you, if you can't pick one, you can pick two or three. Or eight or nine. Um, I think normally I say Abbey Road. Hold on, wait. I just have to say this quote before I forget it, because you mentioned how it was recorded in a day. Their first yeah. album was recorded in 20 minutes. Their second took <laughs> even longer. Ah, <laughs> uh, I yeah. love it. You can't. Rock Apologies the line. for the accent. Yeah. I wasn't even trying. Yeah, you could. Yeah. Uh, oh, you just apologising for your accent in yeah. general. Uh, just, a bit of both. Just so I'm clear. That's yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. So probably, um, I normally say Abbey Road, but I'll tell you the one I got back into recently because. For doing the, the, the country music book, mm-hmm. um, I, I thought, right, I'm going from the start right the way through. I'm going to listen to all the albums. I did the same for one we haven't talked about, which is the Finding the Fourth Beatle book. Oh. We're looking at the drummers. Mm-hmm. Um, I did the same thing, which is start a Please Please Me and work my way through chronologically. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the country music thing, because I started going through, and obviously honing on Beatles for Sale, which is a great, great album. I really got back into the soundtrack for A Hard Day's Night. The soundtrack? I think, what, an album? The British or the American version? I only have the British version. The proper version. Hard Hard Day's Night album is just brilliant. As as I mean, the film is timeless. Mm -hmm. Again, that is just, and I watched it again recently. Mm -hmm. What a film. But the music, the album of A Hard Day's Night is really pushing me up there for getting up close to favourite album as well. No, I, I get it. I Whenever I, you know, want to put on a feel-good Beatles album that's, you know, early Beatles, yeah. but it's just so full of energy, I always go for A Hard Day's Night. 
Because they were just on top of the fucking world. They were on their A-game. Yeah. Yeah. They just had everything going for them, and they wrote all the songs this time. Yeah, exactly. And and that was the change, and yeah, it's just a great, great album. So at the moment, if I'm going to say, right, I'm going to listen to an album, that one's being my favourite at the moment. Hard Day's Night? Hard Day's Night. I always keep. Sorry, did you fall over then? <laughs> I always keep that on standby just in case. Yeah, I'd, I'd keep it on standby. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that was, that was yeah. good. It's one of the many versions of the legendary chord that you'll probably be able to get in a fist fight over with musicians like, yeah. no, it's D minor diminished seventh, man. It's like, I'm not good with those names. I just know my, I know. I know my finger goes there. Yeah. yeah, which is easy to describe um, on radio, really. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. Just see where I'm putting my finger. Yeah, see what I'm doing. Yeah. What are you doing with that single finger? Uh, it's just going there, you know. <laughs> All right. Do you have a least favorite Beatles album? Yeah, probably the one I played the least is the White Album. Really. Please yeah. elaborate. Um, because I mean, I agree with you there. There's so, and, and, and it's prob- a problem because there's so many great tracks mm-hmm. on there. But there's, and thankfully, once we got CDs uh, and MP3s, it's a lot easier mm-hmm. because the song that I refer to as Skip, um, Revolution Nine, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, it's just oh, skips on, skip that yeah. one. Um, but you know, Wild Honey Pie. Uh, those those could like bo- be only like borderline be considered songs. Revolution yeah. Nine is a yeah. sound collage. Yeah, that that's that's an excuse for it not being a good yeah. song. But yeah, you know, the White Album. I feel like it it has a lot of great tracks. But I feel like it almost spreads itself too thin. Like there's exactly. there's a lot of filler. There's too many genres on yeah. there, um, so you can't pigeonhole it. Which, which in some ways is mm-hmm. good. But like I'll say it, I'll get the hate mail. I'm not a big fan of you know Rocky Raccoon. Oh, and yeah. I I know oh, you're yeah. gonna hate me because the kind of country influence on that. No, I. I I don't like that at all. And it is a country-based song and and stuff, but no, I don't yeah. like it. So don't worry, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. It, so you picked out three songs already from an album, which you never really want to listen to. So that that puts me off. Yeah. Um, I was like asking people what their favorite blah 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 is. Uh, what's your favorite Beatles song? You can oh. pick more than one. I've learned to do that. Good. Okay, my, my two at the top vary between first and second mm-hmm. uh, for different reasons, but um, in my life, mm-hmm. which to me is just complete music. Perfection. You don't even have to explain. It's everyone no, knows what it, you mean. It's just. It's just. It's amazing. just in my life. And, ugh, it's. It's a song that can apply to anybody, anywhere. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's wonderful and it's one of those when I was doing Liddy Pool 
not many people know about the original lyrics mm -hmm. to In My Life. Um, when John started writing it, he made a list of the places he remembered. Mm -hmm. First one he mentioned was Penny Lane. So he says, Penny Lane is one I'm missing. Going up Church Road, the road coming off the Penny Lane roundabout, mm -hmm. uh, to the Abbey, the cinema where they used to go and watch the cowboy mm -hmm. films, the clock where they used to meet, the tram sheds that were pulled down, the Dutch Cafe, mm -hmm. St. Columbus Youth Club, um, the overhead railway. So John was making a list of all these places he remembered from childhood, mm -hmm. but he couldn't make it work in a song. Mm -hmm. So he scrapped that bit and it's the more generic, there are places I remember. Yeah. So I love that part of it as well. It's universal. It is. But the original draft are all places close to me where I've lived for over 30 mm -hmm. years. So I love that, that personal bit. And knowing then that that original draft and that discussion sparked a discussion between John and Paul to write songs about childhood. So Paul starts on Penny Lane. Mm -hmm. And John does Strawberry Fields Forever. I'm going to ask you a quick question, but I want to I want to touch back to, uh, you know, listening to these songs and kind of growing yeah. up and living where they were written about. I'm just going to ask, mm. what's your least favorite Beatles song? Least and favorite. And not, nothing like Revolution 9 or... Yeah, we're discounting that actually as a song, aren't we? Um... It's, yeah, it's it's... There's not that many to choose from, but I must admit, I don't like Blue Jay Way. What? Um, yeah, no, I, I don't like that. That's a first. Um, that is a first for the show. Yeah, and I never really got into the Ingenie ones. Um, within You, Without You, I'm, I'm not a fan of that one either, but when you get into least favourite, you if you're discounting uh, Revolution 9, then you're probably back to our least favourites on uh, on the White Album, yeah. Wild Honey Pie or Rocky Raccoon. Um, but now I want, I want to yeah. touch back to what the Beatles mean to you as someone from Liverpool. Well, it's it's one of those things, that, you know, we, we like quoting Monty oh, Python. Oh, of course. Because, so, because, you know, what have the Romans ever done for us? That, that's yeah. famous bit. It's, it's, it's a fabulous mm -hmm. thing. Well, yeah, well, apart from the roads and the education, etc. Mm -hmm. And you still have people today in Liverpool who say, yeah, the Beatles split up in 1970. What have they ever done for us? Well, I can tell you that they're responsible for about 2,500 jobs mm -hmm. for approximately £90 million in tourism income per annum. Mm -hmm. They're part of a draw of over 60 million visitors we get a year. <laughs> and the main reasons people come, Beatles and Liverpool Football Club. Mm -hmm. And one of the great things is, because of that, because the Beatles put Liverpool back on the map, mm -hmm. people come here and they realise what an amazing city I'm it is. I'm one of those people. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. And it's a wonderful place with wonderful people. They were so nice. And people here, I like that we have a reputation for being so open, so friendly. Oh, yeah. And it, it's great because um, 
as well as do my writing and research and I do private Beatles tours mm -hmm. as well. So I get to meet people from all over the world. <laughs> and it's amazing how many people they come here and we always try to say, look, try and get three days at least if you mm -hmm. can. But many will just do a day. I made that mistake the first time I went. So many people have, and they say days, and quite often they'll have a week or 10 days in London, have a day trip to Liverpool. And virtually everything one always says, I wish we'd had more time in Liverpool. Yeah. Because people don't realise what a, an amazing city it is. And that is partly down to, to the Beatles and to Brian's marketing, which was mm -hmm. to showcase Liverpool as a dirty, grimy, industrial town. Mm -hmm. These four lads have been dragged out of the slums, cleaned up a bit and made presentable to the rest of the mm -hmm. world. Whereas Liverpool at the turn of the 20th century was at the centre for world trade in, in cotton, tobacco, sugar. We were second port in the old British Empire, mm -hmm. one of the most important commercial ports in the world. We got over 800 years of history and we got so much to mm -hmm. offer as well as the Beatles. Um, and so I see myself almost as an ambassador for Liverpool, you know, when I come over to the, the States, go to the various Beatles conventions, <laughs> or I go into Europe, or wherever I go, I feel that I'm representing Liverpool. <laughs> and so it, it fills me with a nice sense of, of pride in, in the city and of what the Beatles have done, which not a lot of people know the full extent of what they, they've done for our city as well. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I have that civic pride, as it were. It's... I really do wish I had spent more time in Liverpool when I was there because, you know, uh, fuck the stereotypes of like, you know, people saying, oh, Liverpool's dirty. Like it was a fucking mm. beautiful city. Yes. Yeah. Like I remember, yeah. you know, standing on the, uh, what's the name of the pier? The pier, the pier head. head. Uh, and just looking out onto the river Mersey. Yeah. And it was just, wow. It's gorgeous, yeah. isn't it? And everyone was just so nice. Even to us tacky Canadian tourists. Everybody's welcome. That's the whole mm -hmm. thing. We love the fact, because we've always been a cosmopolitan city yeah. anyway. Um, because of being a port city for three or four hundred years. Um, so everybody's welcome. We've been doing this integration thing for a long, long time here. Uh <laughs> And the majority of people here, we love seeing visitors. And it's one of those things that a number of people have said to me, you know, that they've gone somewhere in, in the city and they've sat down, or if they stood for a moment and looked lost, said, suddenly you're surrounded by people saying, can I help mm -hmm. you? Do you want to, and said, and within 10 minutes, you're talking to them and you know most of their life story. Um, because we just want to make sure everybody's mm -hmm. okay. And um, we're, we're proud of the city, so... Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. So when are you coming back? Uh, I, I don't know yet. There's still this little pandemic thing that's going on. Yeah. But yeah, no, hopefully maybe 2021 I can make it work. Because now I, yeah. I have a lot of people who I want to see in England. Yeah. England, yeah. Liverpool, London. You know, I want to see you, you know, Jack, Jackie yeah, Spencer, yeah. Uh, yeah, Richard crazy. Porter down in London. Yeah. Because... Uh, everyone's just been so nice. 
Yeah. Well, and that's it's one of those things when when you get into the Beatle community, mm-hmm. um, and it, there's so much with you know with everything going on in the world at the moment, um, a lot of the the protests and stuff that's going mm-hmm. on, when we look at the inequality, the injustice, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement, etc. Mm-hmm. And I I was doing um, I did a, a service at our church last year, as a Beatles thing, and I did I think we did about eight or nine Beatles songs. And I talked about the meanings behind the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm saying you know, a lot of people in church circles write off Imagine because they think it's an atheist song, but it, it's not. When you when you look at what John was writing about in Imagine, what he was saying was people get in the way. Um, I always say I'm not religious, but I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I see this because religions are man-made. And once... Once humans get involved in making rules and regulations, mm-hmm. it becomes a nightmare. Yeah. What I found within in this amazing Beatles community, it's so open and it does not matter where you're from, what your creed, your colour, your religion is, none of that matters mm-hmm. because it's a borderless community mm-hmm. which is worldwide, which is all united by this group of four guys from Liverpool yeah. and the love for the music and that the friendship and what they stood for, it tears down barriers it, and it's, it's great. Everybody's welcome. It, in. it literally it, it's, played a part in tearing down the iron curtain. Absolutely. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It, and it's, it's amazing. That's the power of music. And it, it's just, I, I was just welcomed in. Nobody's ever heard of me before. <laughs> Uh, brought this book out in was it, 2009 when Liddy Bull came out for the first time. It's in its third edition now. And I was, I was just welcomed in. Everyone, go and buy so, Liddy Bull so we can get it to its fourth edition. Yeah, I'm working on the fourth edition at the moment. Because um, one of the things that I've, I've just started uh, is something called uh, The Beatles Bookstore. <laughs> because there's so many of us authors out there, and most of us are independently publishing these books because we love yeah. to do it. We certainly don't do it for the money because there's not much of that about. Um, and so it's, it's like a cooperative of, of all of us. Um, so I think there's about 12 or 13 of us authors on there at the moment. It's only been going about two months uh, at beatlesbookstore.com. And it's just a way of us putting our songs, our songs, putting our books out there and helping each other to try and sell the books. So these are the kind of things that, that we like doing is just trying to help each other. And it's amazing it's... that with everything going on, there is something unifying and borderless within uh, the Beatles community. And, and it's, it's amazing. I, I've said this once and I'll say it before. I was blown away at when I went to the Fest for Beatles fans last year how welcoming everyone was. Like, I, I wasn't quite sure what to expect, but everyone just started treating me like family. And they had just met me. And that's, like, forever stuck with me. And I've made all these, you know, probably lifelong friendships. And all these people have, Absolutely. you know, helped me and encouraged me to start this show. I've had many of them on. Yeah. And... And it's just, it's nice to be part of this yeah. world family. Yeah. 
It's an amazing thing. Um, a bit of a lighter question. Who's your yeah. favorite Beatle? <laughs> um, I would have to say um, John Paul, George, Ringo, Pete, Stewart. Oh, shit. I shouldn't have said that. You have the Fab 104 book. We're going to be here for a while. Yeah. yeah. How, far, how far do you want to go with this one? Let's go to 16. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I, I can never come down to, to one. They all contribute something like, else. What do you do? And that, that's the beauty of it. And I think because Ringo had been my favorite for, um, as a kid, <laughs> when I was doing Finding the Fourth Beatle, um, it's amazing that Ringo seems to be the one who is more controversial oh. than the other three. Oh, I, um, I, I know about that. A certain yeah. uh, so topiary statue. Absolutely. The head chopped yeah. off. So it's a bit, a bit of controversy in Liverpool, but you find it within within the Beatles circles as well that it's been, well, John Paul and George, you, you couldn't have the Beatles without any of those mm-hmm. three. But maybe you could if it was a different drummer. I don't think that doesn't make sense. But I'm not a drummer. But I wanted to write this book about uh, the Beatles drummers. So, of course, within uh, the Fab 104, I'd identified 12 drummers. So my friend Gary Popper and I, we we started work on this. And we were going to call the book 12 Drummers Drumming (laughs) until I found the 13th. And I kept going until I found 23 drummers. Uh, between 56 and 1970. So all of these contributed something. May have just been to one song, one one night playing with them, uh, whatever. But they've all got a, a part to play. But of course, the, the big debate is always, and the controversial one is Pete Best and Ringo. And you can often get fans who are camped in one or the other saying that you, you can't really like them both. Oh. You can. They're, they have very different drumming styles. But Correct. with the Beatles that we have come to know and love, you couldn't have had it without Ringo. And that's what like, I wanted to do. You could take people who could and, be, you know, considered better, more technical drummers. Like, you know... Uh, f- fuck, I forgot his name. What's, Ginger Baker from Cream. He, uh, yes, John Bonham, yeah. Keith Moon. It, the... The Beatles yeah. wouldn't have been the Beatles. No, no. you needed Ringo. No. You did. And so what, what I, I came up with in the end, I, mean, I, I interviewed about 10 different drummers to give me their assessments of both Pete and Ringo. Mm-hmm. And what I realised was, and I, I did a chapter which is called The Beatles Are Dead, mm-hmm. Long Live the Fab Four, that as Pete left in the August of 62, that was the end of the band known as The Beatles, who are a great rock and roll R&B covers mm-hmm. band. But a brand new group was formed with Ringo called the Fab Four, mm-hmm. who were a, a studio commercial pop group who were there to make records. And they're a totally different group. They are. And once you see that as two separate bands, you don't have to diss Pete because, and I'll argue this with anybody at any time, it's like, because I've played in bands and I've played with good and bad drummers. You know very, very quickly if a drummer's good yeah. or bad. It doesn't take you thousands of hours and two years to suddenly say, oh, 
actually. I don't think Pete can play drums. Yeah. It's it's nonsense. Um, so I, I I got into that, and I, I still get into that debate with some people who just feel they want to diss Pete, mm-hmm. and there's no reason to, absolutely no, no. reason. Um, of course, the interesting thing I found while I was doing that was I'd always wanted to know why was Pete best sacked? Big debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to prove that he was never sacked. Mm-hmm. Which is, he was never sacked. What we've been told since 1962 is Pete Best was sacked and I could prove he, never, he was never sacked. How, and exactly what How do happened. you mean? He was never sacked. They couldn't sack him. I interviewed Brian Epstein's okay. lawyer. What happened um, to him then? He was, um, the problem, in a nutshell, I mean, it's, it's quite a complicated one, but to summarise it, once they decided they were going to replace Pete, and that only happened after George Martin said he was going to use a session drummer if they got a record contract, if they made a record. Um, so Brian looked in, speaking to his lawyer, how is there any legal ramifications for replacing the drummer? And he said, yes, there is. Because the Beatles are a legal partnership. And in law, certainly in English law, you cannot sack a partner. Now, if you want to do that, you have to dissolve the mm-hmm. partnership. That takes time and money. You have to then draw up accounts and you do a payout mm-hmm. and you sort it out from there. They didn't have the time to mm-hmm. do that. So they had to trick Pete into thinking he was sacked and try and find a way to persuade him actually to quit the group himself. Oh. And that's what they did. Now, we've had, we've had the exact words that Brian spoke at that meeting from Brian and from Pete. And Brian said, and he had to get this exactly right. That's why he was so nervous. The boys want you out, i.e. your legal partners want you out of the group. And Ringo's joining on Saturday. At no stage did Brian ever say, Pete, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're sacked. Never told him They just told him that the others wanted him out and that Ringo was coming in. Yeah. Now, you're 21. You sat there. You don't think, hmm, as I check back into my law degree, I know you can't do that. You think, I've been sacked. But then, even convincing him that he was sacked, even without telling him that, Brian was still legally uh, tied to Pete to find work for him. (laughs) And Brian didn't want that. Mm-hmm. So he offers him the role in a group called the Mersey <laughs> Beats. Now, Billy and Tony were 15 and 16 at the time. There's no way Pete yeah. would do that. So Brian gets his mate, Joe Flannery, who's starting up a band, Lee Curtis and the All Stars. <laughs> he gets Joe to invite Pete to join that <laughs> new band. By Pete saying yes, effectively Pete quits the Beatles. <laughs> without knowing it. Is this the band that became the Pete Best Four? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's it's Machiavellian. It was... It, Brian had to get the word in right. <laughs> it was the only way to do it. So I was able to prove that Pete Best was never actually <laughs> sacked. They tricked him to get him out. Wow. That's the kind of stuff I do. <laughs> That's why I'm a fan of your work. <laughs> 
that's why I love what yeah. I do. You never know what you're going to find. <laughs> that's always I've always found that interesting about the Beatles. It's, you don't see all yeah. this stuff about the Stones or the Who, even though I love those no. groups. But it's the Beatles yeah. are quite possibly the group that you could know the most about physically and there's still stuff being discovered. Well, do you know what? It's funny. I was having a discussion a few years ago. Uh, Martin King, who used to run uh, the Beatles story experience mm-hmm. down the Albert Dock. And we used to get together and just chew the fat and talk about all kinds of stuff. It was fabulous stuff. And he said, why isn't there down in London something called the Rolling Stones story? Because we've got the Beatles mm-hmm. story. And our conclusion was, there isn't really a story. No. There's no story like, like the, the story that the Beatles yeah. have got. Now, they were always second to everything. Mm-hmm. If the Beatles, they were the groundbreakers. They changed absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. You know, that famous quote from Dick Rowe at Decker. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't want to sign the Beatles Guitar- because groups with guitars mm-hmm. on the way out. Groups with the guitars hadn't arrived. I went back analysing the charts like of 1961. Mm-hmm. It was only the Shadows yeah. who were a guitar group. So they hadn't even arrived for them to be on the way out. They hadn't even come in yet. Just remind me, I love the so Shadows so much. Ah, oh, brilliant. Ah, oh. yeah. I, I watched the great documentary on... I really need Whoa. to put this guitar further away from me so I can stop being tempted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. I great know band. all those early Shadows riffs. Oh, fabulous. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hank Marvin. What, what a great You know, I have a Stratocaster that looks just like his, and that's kind of why I like it so much. Oh, You know, cool. the red Fender. Well, technically yeah. not a Fender. It's a lawsuit one. <laughs> and of course, that was the first Fender guitar ever arrived in this country. Because there's that trade embargo. Yeah. So Bruce Welch was the first guy to play a Fender in this country and he still got it. That's why, you know, the Beatles had to play those. Um, well, John got his Rickenbacker in yeah. Hamburg and George had yeah. to use that uh, Futurama guitar that was made in yeah. Czechoslovakia. That's it. He had to import it from there. Great. Terrible oh, details. fuck. They're awful. Yeah. It's like a plank of wood with strings yeah. on it. Uh, I don't get why those things sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm. No. No. I can make them in my backyard. Uh, if Ooh, you could make me one, I'd like... be happy. I could string them together. Okay. In your opinion, why do the Beatles still matter? Still yeah. matter? Um, I think we've gone from, we talked before about the importance of their mm-hmm. music, but I think we're now in a phase of looking back to musical, social, and cultural yes. history because what they did changed the world in the 60s. They, I mean, they changed the music world for starters. You know, they were singer songwriters, you know, performing their own material. They weren't supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. They were a, a group of four 
not one person and the like with Cliff yeah. and the Shadows. Like they wanted it to be John Lennon and the Beatles. Yeah. And that's what George Martin it should be John and the Beatles or Paul and mm-hmm. the Beatles. And thankfully he used his wisdom and not for the last time, he thought, no, they're a group, that's how they should be. And that's how John always mm-hmm. wanted it. He didn't have this ego to make it about him and the rest mm-hmm. of the group. I mean, he still had the is, ego. Yeah, just a different yeah. type of one. But he, he was the leader, he was happy with that. So musically, um, you look at whatever fads have been and gone, and I know you're just a, a young whippersnapper, but having grown up through the 70s and beyond, now I've seen uh, punk mm-hmm. come and go, a ska revival, uh, electronic techno music, disco, prog rock, you know, you keep making the list of all the fads that have come and gone since then. And instead of the thing they call now, which is R&B, <laughs> which I've no idea what that is, because R&B was written yeah. in blues. And you've got, so you've got all these other little trends and stuff that, that come and go. Since 1962, what has been permanently in the charts and selling worldwide are guitar-based <laughs> bands. That's because of the Beatles. You've got bands who are performing their own music. That's because of them. You look at the musical journey they took in what, seven years of making records. Every album they progressed it, they tried different things. They never set, this is our style. Like in a way you could say the Stones found their R&B groove and stuck with it. The Beatles never did that. But they were then affecting fashion <laughs> They were then being outspoken on things like the Vietnam War, civil rights, you know, refusing to play to a segregated mm-hmm. audience. Which they were the first group to do that. Yeah, that's huge. But it's like we were saying before, you're talking about their roots in mm-hmm. Liverpool. Well, they grew up in a multicultural city and it would never occur to them <laughs> to be prejudiced against someone just because of the colour mm-hmm. of their skin. So why I think there's a it? quote from so Ringo they, that they, said, we don't want to play for these people or those people. We just want to play for people. Yeah, you know, brilliant. You, you, you can't sum it up better than that. They, they just want to be there for everybody. So they were taking these stands. You know, pop stars weren't quoted on politics and stuff like that. They yeah. did. You know, Hard Day's Night, we mentioned before, that film is the template for any film you want to make about a pop group. that You, you can't get better than that. No, it's phenomenal. But now we're looking at the effects of all those things that happened in the 60s, looking back and seeing how the world changed. And in some ways, what we've lost is, is like we were saying before, you know, this worldwide Beatles community, and today, 25th of June, is global Beatles is Day. Yep. Happy Beatles Day, and so, as of recording. That's it. Happy Global Beatles Day. Because they're a global group. Yes, they're from mm-hmm. Liverpool. But they belong to the world. They do, mm-hmm. exactly. And they tried to play in as many different parts of the world as mm-hmm. they could. And the music can unify. And it can bring so mm-hmm. much. So that's why we've moved on from just looking at the music. We are now looking at a cultural history and social history of how the world has changed with them 
through them and because of them. I have one final question for you. Absolutely. So everyone I've talked to in or in uh, Liverpool seems to have an Alan Williams story. Oh, Do yeah. you have one, and would you be willing to share it? Absolutely. Um, Alan Williams is one of those people who, because his first book was called The Man Who Gave the Beatles mm-hmm. Away, and he had his stories in there, and the journalist writing it with him needed more. Mm-hmm. They created some made-up stories. So people sort of dismiss Alan mm-hmm. uh, wrongly. And it's funny enough, I because I, I interviewed him for Liverpool. So when I first interviewed him, it must be about 2006, 2007, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, and I, I got to meet him several times over the years. And I actually went to see him about, let's see, it must have been about four or five weeks before he died. And... So he was in his mid-80s, he was about 84, I think he was by then, in um, a nursing home. And he looked fine. He was in fine, fine health. And I was just just chatting away, just talking of the old times. And I said something to him, and I'm so glad I said it to him then. And I said to him, you know, we're talking about all these things with Hamrick said, but Alan, have you ever stopped to think if you hadn't done what you did in 1960, you got them the first drummer in Tommy Moore. Then when he quit, you got the Norman Chapman and helped get Pete Best. You got them a band. You got them places to play. You drove them to Hamburg. If you had not done that in 1960, there would be no Beatles. <laughs> and he said, do you know, what? I've never really sort of thought about it that way. I said, well, you should take credit for that. Because I I will always say, without Alan Williams doing what he did then, there's a very good chance we wouldn't have the Beatles. Um, and that was the last conversation I had with Alan uh, before he died quite suddenly a few weeks later. Um, but he was, he was a great guy. I mean, so full of enthusiasm. He was a schemer. He tried all kinds of get-rich-quick schemes. Which didn't really work. I mean, I think out of all the um, Alan Williams stories I've heard, this is probably the nicest, because a lot of the other ones involve the, being in the grapes, uh, buying Alan <laughs> like a glass of wine with ice cubes in it, and then him telling you to fuck off. Well, my my first interview um, for Liverpool that I did with him was in the grapes, um, and he's not long moved on to his red wine with ice, and I said. I've never ever seen anybody have red wine with ice. And he said, well, the story is, uh, you know, he was always a big drinker. Mm-hmm. And he went to see his doctor and his doctor said, if you don't cut the alcohol, you're going to die quite soon. Mm-hmm. So he said, um, okay, that's not going to happen. So is there anything I can drink that won't be that bad for me? And he said, well, the one thing that does have some good properties to it is red wine. He said, that'll do for me. And so he moved to red wine with ice. That was his drink. And he went on to live um, another what, yeah. 10 or 11 years Lived after that. glorious life. Into his 80s. Yeah. And he, he, he was great. And I always enjoyed getting together with him. Always enjoyed talking through the stories. Um, he, he was a great guy. Um, 
and say often misunderstood and doesn't get the credit he deserves. <laughs> and, and that's, I suppose, what I do with my books. You know, I've done with Liverpool, with the Fab 104, you know, all those people, all the drummers in Finding the Fourth Beatle, all these great musicians in uh, the country of Liverpool. It's all about all these people who played a part in the story but don't necessarily get the credit. I like to tell their stories because we've got a pretty good idea what happened to John Paul George and Ringo. Um, but there's all these other people who played such a significant part and don't sort of get the credit. And I, I love doing that. Well, what you're, I think what you're doing is really important for understanding the oh, whole you. context. It's, it's, it's the Liverpool context. And you, you can only do that if you know, understand and live in Liverpool. Now it's, now it's my favorite time of the show. I'd like to turn it over to you. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, if people want to, Find out, I, I blog quite a lot. So my website is davidabedford.com okay. where you can find all the information, follow my blogs, um, all the information about my books are on there. Um, I've got my own podcast called Liddy Pod, oh. um, which I do with my friend Paul Beasley. Um, and we try and keep it with a, a Liverpool Beatles theme to it. Um, so that, that that's always good for you do, me and him. You do though, don't but, you? Yeah. And that's it. You do that, yeah. don't you? Don't. So, um, so of course, yeah. So davidabedford.com, find out more about me and my books. And I'll what put I all do. the links in the description uh, for all of you lazy to type. So, yeah. Fabulous. And then come to the Beatles Bookstore at beatlesbookstore.com and find all these amazing art, um, authors who are writing these books and they've all got a different part of the story <laughs> to tell. And, you know, we love what we do. We have a passion for it. We don't get advances and we don't make a lot of money, but we don't do it for that. We do it because we've got a part of the Beatles story to tell and we love telling it. Which, you know, kudos to you guys. Thank you. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a blast. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure. I don't know where the time goes. But time flies when you're you, having you fun. Yeah, well, yeah. exactly. Um, I never start a conversation with the Liverpudlian because, <laughs> yeah, you, you'll get a life history. You won't get away. <laughs> and to everyone else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Ah, uh, you can yeah. go to sleep now. Bands on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Fulton. This has been a Showtown production.